Right, good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, it's towards the end of the New Testament, 1 Timothy and chapter 2. Uh, as you turn there, I just want to say, yes, we've heard the news about the new weekend. We've been receiving a lot of queries as to how that impacts us as a church. And uh, the answer that we have to you is we're waiting for more information, just like everybody else. So uh, hopefully we will soon send out a congregational survey to members of the church uh, where you can indicate kind of what you're hearing at your workplace uh, concerning, uh, you know, which day you would be required to work if you're in the private sector. And this, this would be very helpful to us. And I especially want to encourage you to pray for us as elders uh, as we think about these things and seek to lead the church well in this uh, change. Uh, the other thing I want to say is uh, this morning's sermon really is the second in a two-part uh, kind of sermon teaching. If you were not here last week and did not hear last week's sermon, uh, it's available online. I highly encourage you to please listen to that sermon because it will really help you to make sense of what I'm saying today, and it will put things in context for you in a way that today's teaching will be helpful for you. And uh, this is a controversial subject. I want to acknowledge that. It's, it's a diff difficult subject on which sincere Bible-believing Christians disagree. So if you have any questions at all, brothers, sisters, please reach out to me. I love to hear from you. I'd love to sit down, have coffee with you, talk with you about these things. So shoot me a WhatsApp, send me an email, and I'd be glad to engage with you on these matters. I also want to commend to you again for your further study on these issues. This book by Kevin D. Young, Men and Women in the Church, a short biblical practical introduction. Excellent, clear, simple, and I'm told that there are several copies available today in our bookstore, our sister Annie has told me. So please go do pick one up if you'd like to study this further on your own. With that... Let's begin this morning, and I want this morning to begin by telling you a story, the story of a young man who grew up in a non-Christian but religious family, and later in his, late, later in his life uh, became quite pluralistic and progressive in his thinking. He believed that all ways lead to God. Uh, he wanted to always be, you know, in, in favor of what's right and just in society, quite progressive he was very rebellious also, very far from God, until someone invited him to an evangelical church for the first time in his life. And so for the first time in his life, he attended an evangelical church service, and the first thing he noticed about this church was that they had women in leadership, women pastors. In fact, this was a point of great rejoicing for him. He said, finally, a religious group that takes seriously the equality of women and the full inclusion of women in leadership. He really liked this. It appealed to his progressive mind. The second sermon he heard in the church was from a woman about the grace of God. Well, soon the Lord got a hold of this man. He came to faith in Christ. And when he was baptized, he was baptized by both a male pastor and a female pastor of that church together who dipped him in the water. Again, a sign of the full equality of women in leadership. Soon the Lord called this young man into ministry and he began to aspire to serve. He started serving in Christian ministry. He began leading a group uh, with an initiative to plant a church. Friends at the time and described him as young, intense, passionate, pushy. And one of the things that he wanted to push 
was the full equality of women in leadership. And so in this group, which was heading towards a church plant, he constantly elevated women to positions of pastoral leadership. He constantly encouraged women to teach in the gatherings of the group. Some of the women were uncomfortable with doing that, but he said, unless you do this, we won't be able to show justice and equality for women. So you should. And then he found himself challenged by people from other backgrounds. He soon realized his was the minority position in evangelicalism, but he strongly resisted those who opposed him. He said, no, God is fair to all and everyone should be equal. Women should lead and teach. But then he decided to investigate what the Bible says and whether he had understood the scriptures correctly on this issue or not. And he soon found himself challenged by the entire pattern of biblical revelation, but especially by some key passages. After much study, and of course all of it involved a lot of emotional and mental turmoil because he was going against his background because of his church experience, eventually he became convinced that he was in error on this point and that the Bible says something else and he was trying to dance around it. He spent years continuing to study the issue, studying key passages in the Greek text, every word, clause, and phrase. And again and again, it became clear to him what scripture teaches is clear. God's divine design is throughout the Bible. And I want to say one passage was especially significant in showing God's particular order for men and women in the church. God has indeed created men and women to be equal, but distinct, with different roles in the church. Well, friends, if you haven't guessed it already, that young man whom I'm speaking about is standing before you this morning. And today, the text that we're going to look at was the text, the passage, that proved decisive for me on this issue. Like I said, I came to this understanding from the entire pattern of scriptural revelation. But this text especially is very clear and its meaning is very precise. So let me read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Friends, as the father of three precious daughters, I believe in the full equality of men and women. Like I said last week, I want to see the full participation and flourishing of women in every area of church life that the Bible encourages and permits. But I, we, must remain bound and submissive to the Word of God. And it's my calling to tell you what the Word says and to call us to obey it. So last week we saw some critical truths. We saw that God has designed men and women to flourish in the body of Christ in complementary ways that bring him glory. 
we saw that God has created men and women as equals with full equality and yet with distinct dispositions and roles. Because of equality, we say, Scripture encourages and we should encourage women to engage in a whole variety of ministry in the local church. Yet because of distinctions in how we are created, there are certain roles that God assigns to men alone. God places certain boundaries on how men and women are to function in the church. So our main point would be this. We want women to flourish and serve in ministry in every area of church life except for teaching and leading the congregation which God's word reserves for men. Let me say it again. Women are called to serve the church in every capacity except in eldership and in teaching the congregation which God's word reserves for men. We're going to see this affirmed and clearly taught in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to come to God's word with a humble heart and with an open mind, being willing to listen to what the Holy Spirit says in this text. We're going to look at the text verse by verse, answering five critical questions to understand its meaning. And the first question is this. What is the context? If you have the electronic bulletin, by the way, I lay this all out for you there. First question, what is the context? The context of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the local church. Paul writes these letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, to give instructions to a young pastor named Timothy in a city called Ephesus. Paul is giving him instructions for the order of the church to preserve sound doctrine in the church. Paul tells us this. The, the purpose is very clear. The purpose for which he's writing in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Look at this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, so I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the context is the local church. If you read First and Second Timothy, you'll see that there was a lot of false teaching that had entered the church there. And these false teachers had created a lot of disorder and confusion in the church. And Paul here is instructing Timothy, the pastor, to preach and teach sound doctrine and to establish proper order in the church as the antidote to false teaching. Specifically, as we come to our passage, we'll see that Paul is speaking about when the church is gathered, right? In a few verses earlier, in verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That phrase there, in every place, is referring to every place where the church is gathered. So he's speaking about local churches, and especially when Christians are gathered for church. In this context... Paul is seeking to tell believers how the church must be ordered. So that answers our first question, what is the context? Our second question is, what is commanded? What is it that we see commanded in verses 11 to 15? Look at verse 11. It says, let a woman learn quietly 
with all submissiveness. That is the command. And it is a great encouragement and an encouraging command. Paul is saying women can, should, and must learn. This is an encouragement for women to learn. In fact, like we said in the context, Paul is writing to Timothy, like I said, who is a young pastor there. And so he's speaking to this pastor and saying, this is an encouragement for pastors everywhere. This is an encouragement for pastors to foster an environment where women learn the Bible, where women are encouraged to learn the scriptures, to learn sound doctrine, to be equipped with biblical teaching, to be disciples. And in Paul's day and age, this was radically countercultural. You see, in the ancient world, there were many religions uh, which prohibited women from any kind of religious instruction or learning. It was very common in sects of uh, Judaism at the time that women were utterly forbidden from learning the scriptures. I want to say there are many religions even today in which women are not permitted to learn. But Paul's command is countercultural and clear. As one teacher puts it, the sense of Paul's command is, see to it, Timothy, that the woman who seeks to learn does so. That's an encouragement for us. The second half of the sentences, sentence here in verse 11 focuses on the demeanor and the posture of women as they learn. He says, let a woman learn quietly. When he says, learn quietly, this is not meant to be insulting or demeaning or suppressive. It's good for anyone who's learning to learn quietly. Moreover, I want to be clear, this is not an absolute command which is saying that women should be utterly silent throughout the worship service. No, that's not what it's saying. It's referring specifically to learning as the word is being taught. Right? The word for silence there, let a woman learn quietly, is commonly used in the New Testament uh, to speak of people silencing themselves when a speech is given. So it's referring to that disposition. Learning quietly, humbly, as the word is being taught, like Mary sat at Jesus' feet. The next phrase there is, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. And this phrase, sadly, is often misinterpreted and misapplied. And it's been used wrongly to suppress and subjugate women in unbiblical ways. Some people have taken this to mean that a woman being learning with all submissiveness means all women generally should be submissive to all men and every woman in the church should be submissive to every man, should submit to every man. But that's not what the text is saying. What it is indicating here is that women are to be submissive to what they are learning, to the teaching of God's word. Not all women to all men generally, but very specifically that women should learn God's word and live in submission to the Bible, the teaching of the Bible as it's being taught. And so friends, right here with this first command in verse 11, we see that this is a great privilege and a blessing. Sisters in this church, I want to speak to you and say, it's your privilege and your responsibility to learn the Bible, to study the scriptures, to be equipped 
with sound doctrine. This is your privilege to give yourself to the study of God's word. And I want to encourage you in that. And this is our privilege as elders of this church, my privilege as a pastor of this church, to foster an environment where you sisters can be equipped with biblical teaching. So that's the answer to the second question. We saw what is the context, what is commanded. And now third question, what is forbidden? What is it that this text restricts? What are Paul's prohibitions? Look at verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So there are two activities here in this verse that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking authoritatively in God's word, does not permit women to do in the church. There are two activities. First is to teach a man. Second is to exercise authority over a man. Those are two, if you, if you know grammar, then you might be familiar with this term. These are two infinitives, right? They are verbal ideas. And the object of both those verbal ideas is a man. I do not permit to teach a man to exercise authority over a man. So let's look at both of those one by one. First, they're not permitted, women are not permitted to teach men. The word there used for teach and the meaning, the sense of what Paul is saying is he's speaking of the exposition, the public exposition of the scriptures, of the transmission of doctrine in a congregational setting, an official church gathering. In other words, what he's saying, where there is a mixed group of men and women in the church, women are not permitted to teach. So in a setting like this, congregational worship, doing what I'm doing, preaching God's word to you, women are not supposed to do that in a mixed gathering like this. Or we could extend that to say in a class of the church, an official classroom setting in which doctrine is transmitted and handed down, where the participants are mixed, where there are both men and women, women should not teach doctrine in that setting. I want to be very clear what this does not mean it does not mean that women should not instruct or teach or correct men at all. Right? In fact, that kind of teaching is encouraged in the Bible. We saw last week, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Both men and women, members of the church, we're all called to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. This kind of private, interpersonal, mutual instruction and teaching and admonishing one another is encouraged in the Bible. In fact, it is commanded here in Colossians 3.16. If you uh, look at another passage, if you think of the book of Acts and chapter 18, you'll see uh, this uh, little narrative about a young man named Apollos, uh, who was a Jew. He was eloquent and the, and the text says he was competent in the scriptures. He was mighty in the scriptures, some translations say, and, and he was preaching, he'd been instructed in the way of Jesus, but he got a few things wrong. And he was preaching, and Aquila and Priscilla heard him preaching, there in verse 26, and they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And that's a good thing, that our sister Priscilla 
corrected Apollos. And so I want to speak to the sisters in this congregation and say to you, dear sisters, correct me. I welcome your feedback. I welcome your correction. All of us welcome input and feedback from you. And I have profited greatly over the years from sisters who have given me points of feedback or points of correction or have shown me where I'm not entirely clear when preaching or teaching the scriptures. I love your feedback. I welcome it. You know, sometimes some of you know that uh, in a, when I get uh, done with my sermon preparation ahead of time and I have a, some time left, I usually try to uh, practice reading the sermon ahead of time before Friday morning with a smaller group to get feedback. And every time I've done that, I usually, as far as possible, I try to have women included in that group because I love to hear how the Word of God is being heard by them and how I can shape things more clearly. A um, couple of years ago, I was teaching the book of Romans in Dubai, and I was scheduled to teach Romans 11 on a Saturday morning. Now, by God's grace, I've had the privilege of spending years studying Romans uh, at the doctoral level, and I was ha happened to be staying with my dear brother, uh, co-pastor in, in Sharjah, Anand Samuel and his family, and in the night, I was going to talk with Anand and his wife Priya about what I was teaching the next morning. I said, here's what I'm thinking on Romans 11. And Anand was uh, fairly silent, but uh, our sister Priya brought out the theological machine gun and put bullet holes through everything that I was preparing to say. And it was wonderful. It was good for me. We talked for a couple of hours there, and it really helped me to be more clear the next morning. So privately and interpersonally, sisters, please correct, instruct, share insights, to your brothers in Christ. And I want to speak to the men here. Brothers, please, I encourage you to welcome the scriptural insight and instruction and input privately and correction of your sisters in Christ. They have many, many good things to show you in the Bible. On the other hand, I want to say the clear teaching of this verse is that women should not teach in a church meeting where men are present. Now you know there are many feminist interpreters of the Bible, even within evangelicalism, and they try to find other alternative ways to explain this text. So let me give you a couple of examples. For one thing they say, when it says a woman should not teach, they say, well, that's not referring to teaching sound doctrine. It only refers to false teaching. So they'll say what Paul is saying here, I do not permit a woman to teach falsely, but if she's teaching biblical truth, in the gathered congregation, that's fine. Friends, I just don't find that persuasive. And the reason that it is not persuasive is because in the New Testament, there are consistently two different words used. There's one word that is used for false teaching, and there is another word that is used for authoritatively teaching biblical truth and doctrine. And the word that is used here is the latter. It is not the word for false teaching. In fact, if Paul was saying, he doesn't permit false teaching. Why is he only saying that to women? Most of the false teachers were men. He should say, I don't permit anyone to teach falsely. So that's not persuasive. The other uh, interpretation or alternative that they come up with is, well, they say in, in verse 11, Paul said, uh, or in verse 12, Paul said that a woman should learn. Uh, sorry, verse 11, Paul says woman should learn. But in verse 12, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach. But what he's really saying is, a woman should not teach if she hasn't learned yet, but after she has learned, then she can teach. 
Again, that's just not the plain meaning of the words. If I say to you, young people should learn to drive carefully, and then I say, I do not permit young people to text on their phone while driving, I certainly do not mean after they've learned to drive carefully, then they can text on their phone while driving. It's not an accurate interpretation of my words. This text is clearly and unambiguously forbidding women from preaching and teaching in the gathered church. Well, the second activity that Paul prohibits here in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. Now, what does that mean? This simply means that a woman cannot exercise spiritual oversight over a man in the church. Remember, the context is the local church. This is not speaking about the workplace. He's not saying women cannot be managers or leaders in the workplace. It's not speaking about politics. No, it's speaking about the local church. And it's essentially saying that a woman should not hold a church leadership office that gives them spiritual authority over men. In other words, to put it simply, a woman cannot be a pastor or an elder. And again, this is confirmed by the context. If you read just a few more verses and go to chapter 3, verses 1 and following, he gives the qualifications for elders. And in verse 2, he says, Therefore, an elder or an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. And so women are not permitted to hold the office of elder. Again, several of our feminist friends come up with alternative interpretations here. So they'll say the word that is used there to say a woman should not exercise authority over a man. Well, it's really not speaking of exercising ordinary authority. It's saying that a woman should not domineer over a man. Or a woman should not usurp or wrongly take authority over a man. And again, I want to say to you, that just goes against the plain meaning of this word. The word, as it's used in Greek, not just in the New Testament, but in all extra-biblical Greek everywhere, it always carries a neutral meaning. It simply means to have authority. It doesn't mean to domineer or to wrongly take authority. Another interpretation that our feminist friends put forward is that both activities here, to teach or to exercise authority, it's really one activity, not two. And it should be read as a single uh, idea. And they'll say the idea there is, I don't permit women to teach in an authoritative or domineering fashion. So Paul doesn't mind a woman teaching if she teaches in a gentle and gracious manner, but she shouldn't teach in a domineering manner. Again, brothers and sisters, that's just not what the text means. For example, if I say, I do not permit my children to fight or to make noise. I do not mean, okay, you know, they, they should not fight in a noisy way, but they can fight in a quiet way. Right? That would be an inaccurate representation of my meaning. All right? I'm forbidding two activities, fighting and making noise. Paul is forbidding two activities, teaching or exercising authority over a man. The meaning of the prohibitions here, my friends, are clear. Women are not to teach in a mixed setting of the church or to function in a way that exercises spiritual authority over men in the church. This is why, by the way, at ECC, 
Presently and for 50 years of the history of ECC, we do not have women serving as pastors or elders, and we do not have women teaching official classes of the church to mixed groups of men and women. Okay, so we've seen the context, we've seen the commands, we've seen the prohibitions, the boundaries that Paul places, but now comes the all-important question. Why? What are the reasons for these restrictions? Why does God give us these boundaries? And the answer is right there in verses 13 to 15. Look at those. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul begins verse 13 with the word for. Whenever you see the word for in the Bible, you've got to ask what is it there for? And it's there to tell you the reasons for what he has just said in verses 11 and 12. And the first reason that we see is in verse 13, and it is the created order. The created order. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And if you remember, uh, going back to the last few weeks, we go back to Genesis. Paul is simply interpreting and applying the Old Testament here. He's taking his readers to Genesis chapter 2. And if you go to Genesis chapter 2, you'll see in verses 7 and 8 that the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. Man was created first. God planted a garden in Eden and there he placed the man. Then as you read verses 15 and 17, you'll see that God charged and tasked the man. He gave him responsibility. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Keep the word keep, I told you, means protect. Man, Adam, was to protect God's dwelling place, God's sanctuary, the garden of Eden. And God gives the man his command, saying, you may surely eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And it is after this, in verse 18, that God created the woman, saying, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Friends, God created men and women as equal, male and female, in his image, with equal worth and dignity. Equal, but distinct. Equal, but not interchangeable. Woman was a helper fit for man. God created the man first, charged the man with responsibility, commanded the man not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when this command was broken, God held the man responsible. God calls out to Adam first. So Adam was given a task to work and to keep, to protect and to provide. Adam was given responsibility and authority and was created first. And of course, if you think of the work of an elder in the local church, what is the job description of an elder? Elders are charged with protecting God's church, protecting God's sanctuary from false teaching. Elders are given the responsibility of keeping God's commands for the well-being of the church, looking after the well-being of the church. Elders are to provide for the church through biblical teaching. Elders are to lead the church by their godly example, just as Adam was called to lead. 
And so the created order for Paul in Genesis 2 clearly spells out male eldership and certain ideas that should be reflected in the church from the created order. The second reason that Paul gives is he points to what happens when this order is violated, the violated order. And that's in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And you read that and you might, it might jump out at you and you might ask a question, what is Paul blaming women for sin? I want to say absolutely not. Because if you look at the rest of the New Testament, in the entire rest of the New Testament, in fact in the entirety of the whole Bible, sin, especially the responsibility for that first sin, is always charged to Adam. In fact, just read Romans 5, also written by Paul, where Paul says Adam was responsible for bringing sin into the world. So Paul is not simply blaming women for sin. Or is Paul saying that women are more likely to be deceived, that women are created in such a way that they're more susceptible to deception and being led astray? Some people have taken this interpretation. Again, I want to say that is not true. That is incorrect. Because if women are more likely to be deceived, then why should Paul say in verse 11 that they should learn? Elsewhere, he says that women should teach other women and children. We saw last week that Timothy himself learned the faith from his mother and grandmother. So why would women be encouraged to teach the next generation if they are more likely to be deceived? So this is an inaccurate interpretation. Women are encouraged to learn. They are not more likely to be deceived. So what is Paul saying here then? Well, Paul is now taking us to Genesis chapter 3 that we heard read earlier today. And he's saying that the way that God's order was violated in the garden resulted in disaster and so it should not be violated in the church. Think about the order in creation. God Almighty, the creator with all authority, created the man. Then he created the woman as a helper fit for the man under the man's authority. And then you see all of the beasts, the man and the woman are told to have dominion over all creation. So all of the animals were supposed to be under the authority of the man and the woman. So the order is God, man, woman, and then animals under the man and woman, under the human beings. What happens in Genesis 3? You see a beast of the field, a creature, the serpent, come to the woman, take authority over the woman, deceive her. The man is silent and passive and not doing anything there. Then the woman takes authority over her husband, Adam, in an unsanctioned way. And then they both seek to make themselves like God, rebelling against God's command, seeking to assert their own authority above God's word. It's a complete inversion of God's order. So I think what Paul is saying here in this verse, in verse 14, is that Adam was not deceived first. Right? Even in the previous verse, verse 13, he says Adam was formed first and then that word first just carries over, I think very clearly in the original, to verse 14. Adam was not deceived first, but the woman was deceived first and became a transgressor. The precedent for violating God's order was in the garden and the result of violating God's order was an unmitigated disaster. And we see that all around us, don't we? We see all of the pain and suffering of this world. We see the stain of sin in our own hearts. 
we see the sting of death and the expectation of judgment and condemnation all as a result of this sin going back to Genesis chapter 3 that came from overturning the order that God had appointed. Eve taking the lead in an unsanctioned way while Adam passively followed. God created man and woman and placed them in a beautiful garden paradise to live in perfect fellowship with him and with one another. But man and woman fell into sin because of the overturning of the authority structure that God had appointed. And friends, we face the same temptation today from the cultural winds that blow into our minds, that blow into the church, calling us to conform to the pattern of this world rather than to God's word, saying things like, did God really say? And you know, God could have judged us. At the end of Genesis 3, God could have just ended it there. The Bible would have been three chapters long. But praise God that by His grace, it doesn't end there. Because God provided a plan. God Himself established a way for us to be saved from our sins. And that's what verse 15 reminds us of. So we saw Paul's reasons here, the created order, the violated order. Now we're seeing in verse 15 the restored order. Look at verse 15. It says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Saved through childbearing? And you wonder, what in the world does that mean? Is it saying that childbearing saves women from sin and gives eternal life? Well, let's clarify. First, we have to understand the meaning of the word saved. And I do think there it's the same word that is always used. The word saved there is talking about salvation from sin. Salvation from judgment. You hear that and you say, but I thought we were saved by grace, not by anything that we do, but this is saying we're saved by childbearing and faith and love and holiness. I want to say, yes, you're exactly right. We are saved by grace alone through, through trusting in what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, right? We're all sinners. God is holy. He is our creator. All of us have sinned and rebelled against him and we deserve judgment for our sins. But God in His grace has made a way. He provided His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who died on the cross, taking our judgment upon Himself, bearing the penalty for sin, so that whoever repents from sin and trusts in Him will be forgiven of sin and have eternal life. That's God's grace. And it's free by faith alone. But believing in Christ also transforms our lives. The gospel not only saves us, but also sanctifies us. It transforms us to be people who conform to God's word and who live according to God's purposes for us. Women like men are saved by grace, but that salvation changes us into people who live in good works. So why does it say childbearing there? Women will be saved by childbearing. Of course, we know not all women bear children. I know there are many sisters here who are barren and have had the struggle and suffering of infertility. And I want to say God has great compassion on the barren woman. Or there are many women here who are single by choice or not by choice. So how can it say women are saved by childbearing? Well, I want to be clear. It's not just the specific act of childbearing that saves women. That's not what Paul is saying. What is Paul's meaning here? He's referring to childbearing because this is the unique domain and privilege 
and grace that is given by God to women. Men, no matter how much you might want to, cannot bear children. Right? This is a woman's privilege. It's what makes women distinct. When Paul says childbearing, it's a way of speaking about God's divine design. It's a way of saying that one of the marks of a woman who is saved by God's grace is that she embraces God's divine design for women. And they live lives of godly womanhood in faith, love, holiness, self-control, in submission to God's word, in submission to God's design. As, as one person puts it, this is very clear, Christ saves through faith as the gospel message is proclaimed, and women hear, internalize, learn, and live it. The gospel message calls for and produces initiative, understanding, commitment, and countercultural life choices for women who take that message seriously. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never experienced the transforming, redeeming grace of God. Maybe you're here to your non-Christian friend and you have Christian women friends in your life or you see the women of this church and you've wondered, wow, what a compelling life they live. Look at their love. Look at their faith. Look at their self-control. Look at how beautifully they represent and give us a picture of womanhood. What is it that makes them that way? Dear friend, I want to share with you, all of us are sinners. And, and the reason that you see beauty in the lives of men and women in this church is because of what God has done in Christ. That God has provided a way for sinners to be forgiven of sin and to be made right with Him. To have new life and transformation. He sent His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. Taking our judgment upon Himself. Taking the penalty for sin upon Himself. And then rising from the dead. And Jesus gives new life forgiveness of sins and transformation to all who will turn away from sin and put your trust in him alone. So dear friend, I encourage you to do that today. And if you'd like to talk to any of us after this service, we'd be glad to talk with you more about how you can follow Jesus. So we've looked at this passage carefully. We've seen its context, its commands, its prohibitions, and the reasons for those restrictions. Which leads to our final question this morning. Does this apply to us today? And the answer is, absolutely. It does. God's word applies to every church in every time and place. And again, you see feminist, feminist biblical interpreters try to come up with different ways to get around this. So one thing that they'll say, well, Paul was only speaking to a particular situation in a particular church. Therefore, it can't apply to other churches. And I want to say, isn't that most of the New Testament? Most of the New Testament is written to particular situations in particular churches, and yet those commands apply to all of us. Another thing that feminist interpreters will say is, say, they'll say, Paul was just speaking into a particular culture. He's influenced by his culture of that time. These prohibitions were given for that culture only. The reasons for these restrictions were cultural. And again, I want to say, brothers and sisters, look at the text. What are the reasons that Paul gives for these boundaries? They're not cultural reasons. They're biblical reasons. They're reasons that are transcultural and timeless. They go all the way back to creation, to Genesis. Some feminist scholars like to point to Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, 
and they'll say there is no male and female you are all one in Christ Jesus that should take uh, primary place over 1 Timothy 2 but again look at the context of Galatians 3 we saw this last week verse 29 says if you are Christ you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise Galatians 3 is saying there is no distinction between men and women when it comes to salvation we are all equally recipients of God's promises in Christ it's not saying that there should not be any order in the church and so the final place then that feminist readers of the Bible will come to is to say, well, you're right, that's what Paul says. He says that women should not teach in the church nor be a pastor or elder. And here's what it is. Paul was biased. They'll say Paul was simply wrong. Friends, if that's your thinking, may I submit to you that that kind of mindset is dangerous and absolutely deadly to our souls. We cannot pick and choose which parts of the Bible are right or wrong or say that something inspired by the Holy Spirit is wrong. Because if you say Paul was biased or wrong on this point, then you run the risk of saying that Paul was biased or wrong on other areas like salvation by faith and grace alone in Christ. I love what the great British evangelical pastor John Stott says on this. He says, all attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship on grounds that it is mistaken, confusing, culture-bound, or culture-specific must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It is rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved as having permanent and universal authority. So friends, let us be clear. This passage is not saying men are superior to women or women are inferior to men or women are just not as smart as men or something like that. That would be wrong understanding. I know many, many women who are smarter than men, who are more capable than men, who are more godly than men, who are more spiritually minded than men. But this passage is saying that because of the way God has designed us, there is a certain order that must be maintained in the church. And I want to speak to our sisters and say, praise God for the many, many women. I praise God for you sisters in our church, in our congregation, who joyfully submit to this teaching, who seek to live as humble, eager learners of the scriptures, who joyfully live within the boundaries that God has placed. Young girls, children, little girls, I want to speak to you. As you grow, embrace your calling as women to learn the scriptures to submit to God's word, to live in faith and holiness, to live within God's appointed boundaries. I want to speak to the men and young men here in the church, boys. I want to encourage you, step up. The Bible also calls us as men to step up. Read chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7 and the character qualifications of an elder and I want to speak to the men and the boys here and say, those character qualifications are things that you should aspire to emulate in your life. Aspire to be such a man. Not a worldly kind of man, you know, with worldly machismo and self-centered, self-seeking strength. No, learn to be a godly, humble, Christ-like man who seeks to serve others. I want to speak to you, dear sister or sisters, if you're here this morning, and you're really struggling with the teaching of this passage. 
Maybe you're here and you're feeling some kind of turmoil inside as we've looked at this text. And you just say, oh yeah, God's word doesn't allow women to teach in the congregation or to exercise authority. That just feels so restrictive. And, and you feel disgusted by that. Dear sisters, I want to say God's word is never restrictive. It's never meant to be stifling. No, God's commands are always, always life-giving and joyful and good. God's commands are given to us for life and for our good. They are sweeter than honey, the psalm says. Don't listen to that voice that tells you that God's word is stifling and restrictive. It's, it's a familiar voice, you know. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where God gave Adam and Eve an entire beautiful paradise and every tree of the garden and said, of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And then the serpent comes and says, has God really said you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He makes God's commands look restrictive rather than life-giving. Now don't listen to that voice which comes with a hiss in your ear. And I want to encourage you, don't embrace this passage's teaching begrudgingly. Like, oh, well, that's just what it teaches. I guess I'll submit to it. Dear friend, God's word is always beautiful. And is to embrace, to be embraced joyfully. It's not burdensome. For nearly 2,000 years, this passage had always been clearly understood by men and women Christians everywhere. And suddenly in the last 50 years, the clear teaching of scripture is being challenged because of the culture. You know, I don't know what your culture is, what your background is what tradition, faith tradition you grew up in, how you were raised, or who discipled you. Maybe like me, you came from a Christian background where you had a woman pastor, and they mean a lot to you. Maybe your mother might be a pastor. You know, maybe you grew up with your favorite pastora, or Pastor Amma, and you love her very much. But dear friend, we must submit to God's word. This is our authority, and we must Hold the Bible above culture, above tradition, above background, above experience, above anything else that comes to challenge it. We must be beholden and bound to God's infallible word. I want to close with a story of a mentor of mine. He's a Bible professor who holds the teaching that I shared with you today from this passage. And he was in dialogue with another Bible interpreter who was feminist, feminist interpretation. And he told this other scholar, you know what, I'm really, really uncomfortable with leaping over the evidence. You see, actually, I would love to hold your position that women should be leaders in the church because it would make life very easy for me in the culture. But the problem is in order to come to that position, I have to leap over the clear teaching of scripture and the evidence of the Bible. And you know what the feminist evangelical Bible scholar said? He said, Tom, you're absolutely right. Take that leap. Take that leap. And I want to say to you, dear friends, may we never dare to leap over God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The culture withers and societal times change, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your beautiful life-giving word. 
Give us hearts that are eager to submit to it. Help even those of us who are wrestling or struggling with its teaching. Give us light and life by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.